I'd like to spend a bit of time with the congregation this morning talking about a love story. A love story, as I've described here, as having gone wrong. And like, I guess, any love story, there's, there's, there's a backstory, there's a history to it. And I'd like to spend a little bit of time together uh, reading and, and appreciating something of the events that led to the beginning of the love story, the events that characterised the love story, and then how that love story became at risk, as it were, of um, of falling apart. The seeds of the beginning of the church at Ephesus were sown by Paul and the husband-wife team of Aquila and Priscilla in about AD 50. The scriptures indicate that these three worked together in Corinth as tent makers, while Paul also preached and taught in the local synagogue. After some time in Corinth, the three sailed to Ephesus, and upon their arrival, Paul preached in the synagogue, but he soon left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus while he returned to Jerusalem. Paul promised to return if God so willed. While Paul continued his travels to Jerusalem and then on to Galatia and Phrygia, a zealous and gifted speaker named Apollos arrived in Ephesus. Though he had a good knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures, He knew only about the baptism of John. Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and explained to him the way of God more adequately. And Apollos soon relocates from Ephesus to Achaia. During his third missionary journey, the time frame around AD 53 to 58, the Apostle Paul returned to Ephesus where he found some disciples who'd received only John's baptism. Presumably, these were disciples taught by Apollos before he knew the way of God more accurately. Paul baptised them into Christ and spent three months teaching in the synagogue and then two years in the school of Tyrannus. This was one of the Apostle Paul's longest stays in one location and the results were impressive. All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. During Paul's ministry in Ephesus, several other noteworthy events took place. Here it's recorded that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out from them. When seven sons of Sceva unsuccessfully tried to follow Paul's example of exercising evil spirits, they ended up fleeing the house naked and wounded. The result, this became known to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus and fear fell on them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. In the wake of these events, many in Ephesus turned from their practice of magic and burned their books pertaining to that craft. It's recorded that the value of these books amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. That is 50,000 drachmas which was the typical daily wage. And again, the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. The truth of God made such an impact in the area 
that local craftsmen who made replicas of shrines to Diana soon became fearful that this teaching would put them out of business. On his way to Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary journey, Paul met with the Ephesian elders once again, warning them that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Luke concludes this episode. When he had finished speaking, he knelt down with them all and prayed. There was much weeping among them all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving especially because of what he had said, that they would not see him again. Then they brought him to the ship. Again, moving a little bit forward in time, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, thought to be written from Paul's imprisonment in Rome around 60 to 62 AD. So we pick up a few representative snippets, as it were, from Paul's letter to the church there. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. And concluding the epistle, peace be to the whole community and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you all who have an undying love for our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in about AD 63 to 65, during Paul's fourth missionary journey, that he's following his first imprisonment in Rome, Paul charged the evangelist Timothy to work with the congregation at Ephesus. Paul's pressing advice for Timothy at that time was to warn the brethren to beware of false doctrine. And moving forward again, this time to about AD 95, Jesus' address, as it's recorded by John in Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. But anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. 
you think about the, the way that Jesus himself characterizes the church at Ephesus at this point in their history, some, you'll notice some 40, 45 years after the church was first established, they were characterized by works and toil and patient endurance. They were not tolerating evildoers and false prophets. They hated, you'll notice, the work of the Nicolaitans, which we, we don't really know exactly what the Nicolaitans taught or practiced. Uh, they're mentioned again in Revelation, in the address to Pergamum, um, where Jesus says that of, of the church at Pergamum, you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you have also some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Assuming that there is a connection here intended between Balaam and his teaching and and that of the Nicolaitans, the concern seems to be behaviour motivated by greed and selfishness as Balaam sought to seduce the people of God, as it were, to embrace paganism and idolatry. So the same sense, perhaps, was the motivation of the Nicolaitans. Greed and selfishness. Be that as it may, Ephesus appears to be a church that is doctrinally and morally sound, teaching and practicing all the right things. But even despite this, They had, as Jesus put it, lost their first love. Remember, he said, it's against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What did Jesus mean by abandoning their first love? Whatever is meant, he gives the remedy here. That is, to remember from what you have fallen, to repent or change your mind, and to do the works you did at first. Failure to do so will result in Jesus removing their lampstand from its place. A bit of speculation about exactly what Jesus means here. Perhaps he's predicting the demise of the congregation. If they don't turn their situation around, ultimately the congregation will die. Perhaps he's even warning that their salvation is at stake. However we understand the imagery of removing their lampstand, it's clear that Jesus is serious. This is a serious matter for the church at Ephesus. So as we contemplate the question, what exactly did Jesus mean by abandoning their first love? Had their love for Jesus been abandoned? Jesus had earlier said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. But the church at Ephesus' commitment to right doctrine and right practice is commended here by Jesus, which suggests that their love for him is authentic. I don't think we can fairly dismiss the Ephesians' obedience as merely heartless formalism. 
one might expect that from the apathetic, neither cold nor hot church described by Jesus in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. But the faith of the Ephesians is described here by Jesus as persevering and as enduring hardships for Jesus' name. It doesn't sound like a church with a loveless relationship with their Lord. Had their love for one another been abandoned? Again, Jesus had earlier said to his disciples, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Letter to the Ephesians, general encouragement to express love among the brethren, but it doesn't appear to be a point of emphasis or, or special concern on the part of Paul. For example, Paul said, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Ephesians 4 verse 32. But here, Paul doesn't really give any clear indication of a lack of love among these brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, a little later, through reflected through the writings of, of Timothy, uh, the, the, the focus is upon maintaining proper church order, uh, orderly prayers and teaching, uh, the appointment of elders and deacons, the care of widows, etc. And what does seem to be a repeated theme, the resisting of false teaching. Again, a lack of love among the brethren does not seem to be a significant challenge for the church in Ephesus at the time of Paul's writing to Timothy. Evidence from early Christian writers places the Apostle John in Ephesus during most of his later years, around AD 70 through 100. John's first epistle, which is thought to have been written around somewhere between 85 and 95 AD, is full of discussion about love, granted, but it is directed largely against the immoral antichrists who were troubling the churches of Asia. Love of brethren was one of the ethical tests that these divisive false teachers failed, not the faithful Christians in locations like Ephesus. So we're left to ponder what Jesus meant when he said to the church, they have abandoned the love they had at first. Now, they've not obviously yet lost their love entirely. They had abandoned the love they had at first. Which leads me to suppose that it seems the spark that ignited and sustained their love, characterised by their obedience, evidenced by their faithfulness, that that spark had waned and that their relationship with Christ was now at risk. Going through the right motions alone cannot sustain faith forever. Spiritual disciplines are a necessary container to develop and express a properly directed love towards God and neighbour. But they are only a container, a body as it were. And as we all know, a body without spirit is dead. If we remain passive receivers, mere consumers, rather than proactive givers or servants, we're at risk of becoming religious whitewashed tombs or worse, simply bored and dissatisfied. Whitewashed tombs, to borrow Jesus' language from Matthew chapter 23, as he described at least some of the Pharisees of the day, who were concerned about outward appearances, 
a very consumerist religion, if you will, concerned about impressions of what was in it for me, as opposed to being concerned about inner transformation and godliness. Beautiful whitewashed tombs sparkling in the sunshine, but inwardly, as Jesus said, full of dead men's bones. I'd like you to look at this photograph. No doubt it's staged, it's just pulled down off the internet. But the photographer and the actors involved, I think, did a wonderful job of capturing that that sense of the proverbial love at first sight. And I hope everybody's had the, had the, the wonderful opportunity, the thrill of that first engagement with another person when you thought something special has happened here. My moment was in a library at Florida College in the US when young Donette walked into my life. The blossoming of love. The excitement of discovery. It's reminiscent of Jesus' teaching, I think, we're speaking of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which someone found and hid. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Think of our lives as a story, and this simple little storyboard, I guess, is meant to symbolise that. His old doggo typically reminds me of a day in in, uh, in the life of um, um, of uh, young Bailey here on Maclay Island. Doggo chases his ball. He's about to get the ball when he notices something. He sniffs around. Faith intrudes upon the story of our life. Our love of Jesus is a new and exciting distraction, even an obsession. It can become so large that we become distracted from everything else in our life. If faith remains disconnected from the rest of life, it eventually becomes compartmentalised. We shrink it again to make it more manageable amidst the rest of our story, as it were. And then it becomes marginalised. It gets moved off to the side somewhat. And ultimately, it can become irrelevant, even though we may remain outwardly religious. But faith that becomes connected to the rest of life keeps our love of Jesus, our first love, at the centre of everything. And the the point I want to make here, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's statement again, when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Lewis here is describing a faith that's moved beyond mere infatuation. 
beyond the romance of love at first sight. Not to lose that romance, but to allow that romance to expand and grow to the point where it becomes the lens through which all of life is seen and understood and appreciated. I sometimes wonder at the history of Israel and the great lofty heights that God had placed it upon and the great fall that occurred spiritually as a result of their unfaithfulness to God. Look with me at at Jeremiah's description in Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it were held guilty. Disaster came upon them, says the Lord. Here's a wonderful image of love at first sight, where Israel were devoted to God. And one could well ask at that point in their history, how could one ever even imagine the wheels falling off such a relationship? But of course we know historically it did, as Jeremiah lamenting in a period of history when Jerusalem was just about to be uh, wiped out by the Babylonians as a consequence of their unfaithfulness. Notice verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me, that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? So this pattern is not uncommon. I'd like to use to make some illustrations here, a model uh, a cycle of love, as I would call it, and, and have applied it in a number of different contexts. But to expand on this idea of first love and the loss of first love, we begin in a relationship with what's illustrated there as the the enmeshment, the overlapping, the close overlapping of the two circles where the focus is upon the dependence of the two, where effectively they're undifferentiated, where very often the sort of thinking is, my life is incomplete without you. I couldn't imagine life without you anymore. I need you. It's a very needy standpoint. And this is the position of creativity and romance of what I will describe here as first love, using the... um, the Greek vocabulary would probably associate the word eros with this sort of this sort of condition, and it's delightful and it's wonderful, and it's the common beginning point for many relationships, many romances. But then, most inevitably, there's a, a movement away from that delight, the romance. In psychological terms, usually referred to as individuation, and, and that I guess that word sort of implies uh, what what is intended here. That the meaning of the word, the, the the shift from 
total dependence towards a, a movement away towards independence from the other. And the question here is, who am I apart from the other? This is the realm of relationships, again, to use the Greek vocabulary, phileo, brotherly love, uh, friendship love, uh, quid pro quo, where the idea is you scratch my back and, and, and I'll scratch your back. And, and again, this isn't a criticism of that type of relationship. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a good and, and potentially a wholesome relationship. But the particular nature of it, it's different to eros. It's different to the, to the enmeshment. Of, of eros, it's it's very much a separation, and, and I begin to look at the other and to consider my relationship to them as somebody other, someone separate. We might throw in the concept of individualism, and in the context of our relationship with the church and God, for that matter, we might reach a point where where we move beyond that romance, the initial, the first love, to begin asking the question: Do I really need God? Or do I really need the church for that matter? And so we enter into what I've described here as, as a cost-benefit analysis. And I think this is reflected in things like Jesus is teaching the parable of the sower, you might remember, with the various soils. The sower goes out to sow, and the, and, and the seed that's sown, you remember, is, is the word of God, is the gospel. And we read in the condition of the various soils the conditions of different types of heart reflected in the different types of responses to the word. Some just are as hard as concrete, a footpath, and 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 the word just doesn't have a chance to penetrate at all. Others are shallow, and so the seed takes quick root, but, but it's exposed to the elements and it fizzles pretty quickly. Others take deeper root, but they never, never separate from the thorns and the thistles, the weeds that continue to grow and eventually snuff out, suffocate the growth of the seed. But then there are those, of course, Jesus described as the good and honest hearts, that that good soil, the rich soil, where the seed is planted and takes deep root and brings forth much fruit. You see, if we think of those soils as people, we might well imagine them engaging with that question, what's the cost-benefit here to me? And if I'm not getting what I think I need to get out of it, then I will I will go elsewhere, I will look elsewhere. The compartmentalization of faith, where we don't allow it to become that all-pervasive lens through which we see life, but rather we put it aside where we might say, okay, I'll allocate a couple of hours a week to religion, to God, but that's that's really effectively it. And then there are generational factors. The Sunday night class in Romans, we've been mentioning the, the sector denomination process. That tendency from one generation to another, the first generation starts with great zeal. There's your first love. But then their children, for whom it's an inherited faith, not as strongly motivated by that first love romance and the energy that comes of that. And then by the time we get to the grandchildren, very often they're just simply not interested in looking for a different different way to spend their time altogether. The goal. to move 
towards what, again, using the Greek vocabulary, agape, willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other. Hands down, the majority of times when Scripture speaks of the love of God or love in general, it's, it's using that word agape. It's speaking of unconditional love. It's speaking of sacrificial love. It's speaking of that which is expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ who emptied himself to become a servant, to suffer and die, and then to call others to follow him in that same path. And so here we're talking about a mature interdependence where it's a chosen relationship. Effectively, let's dance. And it's reminiscent, I would argue, of the relationship of the Trinity, the relationship of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And I've used descriptions there that go back to Augustine, speaking of the Father as the lover, the Son as the beloved, and the Holy Spirit as the love that flows from that relationship between the Father and the Son. And if we're to think of first love, it's the spirit here, the spirit of creation, the spirit of energy, where the romance begins, ideally grows, as it did, it seems, with the church at Ephesus, into a mature relationship characterized by Obedience, faithfulness. We think there, of course, of the relationship of the son to the father. But it's not that the romance is outgrown. The romance is maintained to energize the mature relationship. How do mature lovers maintain the romance they had it first. Well, what does Jesus mean by abandoning their first love? We're back to that question. Whatever is meant, the remedy is to, to remember. Remember from what you have fallen. What made you fall in love in the first place? Any, any couple, any, any, anyone that's been married for some time and are struggling because of the perceived loss of that spark, would do well to consider, to revisit these sorts of questions. What made you fall in love in the first place? What did you find lovely about your beloved? Then to repent, to change your mind, to change the framework, to change your thinking, to shift your focus from self back to your beloved, from dissatisfaction, which will always result when the focus is upon the self, to gratitude in looking out outward how can you serve and bless your beloved and then do the works you did at first there was probably a time when you could not spend enough time with your beloved the time that you were apart you probably spent much of that time thinking about how and when you could be back together again 
do the work she did at first. Reprioritize and reconnect through shared communication and activities. Now, there's some pretty good marriage counseling that you're getting for free. As we apply Jesus' teaching for the church at Ephesus to our individual lives, but what about when it's applied to us as a church? How does a church rediscover its first love? Remember from what you've fallen. Do we remember what made us fall in love with Jesus in the first place? What did we find lovely about Jesus and his church that drew us together out of the world? Repent. Do we need to redirect our focus from self back to Jesus and our brothers and sisters in Christ? From consumerism and dissatisfaction to an attitude of gratitude. How can we better serve and bless Jesus and his church? The works you did at first. We can't spend too much time with our beloved and we want to declare the virtues of our beloved from the rooftops. Do we need to reprioritize and reclaim shared communication and activity? What's our engagement with Bible study? Both academic and contemplative. The simple act of sitting down to be nourished with the word of God. With prayer with evangelism, with church ministry and fellowship. You know, Ephesus, I'd like to I'd like to think we could conclude with a love story revived. I don't know. If we look back at ancient uh, the ancient side of Ephesus, it's just a bunch of stones and rubble, the, the evidence of the city being there once but no longer being there. I don't know. What happened for Ephesus or the church at Ephesus there, whether they, whether they heeded Jesus' warning and were able to reclaim their first love or not. But a more pressing question really is for us at the point. Are we losing our first love? And this question is very purposefully pointed in the context of where we are at as a church right now. Some of you will be aware that on the 14th and the 15th of October, we've got our annual elders and deacons strategic planning for 2022 and beyond. And ideally, our plan, as we've done in previous years, will be at the end of October, the 31st of October, uh, the plan including the summary and the budget proposal, will be presented to the congregation for approval. But we're needing to engage with something more than just a couple of words on a screen there. As a congregation, we need to take ownership, as we did in the past, as we did in the beginning. And so we're looking at a process that we're beginning this morning with the lesson this morning, offering the opportunity for all of the congregation to be challenged by that question. Are we losing our first love? And are we going to take measures to reclaim that first love? Um, 
with the invitation to the Zoom that George sent out for the for the Sunday service today, uh, you will have received a, a PDF of a handout, um, First Love, that I'm asking the members of the congregation to to take some time to dwell with it, to 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 think about it, to engage with it um, as a as a primer for. Um, the process as we go forward as a congregation. On Sunday, the 29th of August, uh, we're going to be looking at a lesson addressing the questions of what are our priorities and, and what are our options. But then most importantly, we're working towards two congregational workshops, the first on Sunday, the 12th of September, where we're going to begin negotiating a vision and brainstorming. And then on the 26th of September, a second congregational workshop where we're seeking to formulate a clearer picture. All of this depends upon the willingness of each member of the congregation to engage in the process. On Sunday, the 3rd of October, Peter and Hilda are graciously opening up their home for a congregational lunch which I'd like to think of as a, as a bit of a climax to this process as we lead then uh, just a week or two later into the, um, uh, the elders and deacons strategic planning, which will be dependent greatly, largely upon the feedback and the participation from the congregation in the months before. So I want to thank you for your time. I want to encourage you to think about these things. And again, take the time to, to read that handout, to engage with it, to consider it and to respond to it. Write your responses down. This will be, this will be good, um, uh, reference point for you to help you engage, particularly with the, uh, the congregational workshops.